morning and welcome to the Calvary Chapel live stream. It's a blessing to have you with us today reading God's Word and in the book of Luke chapter 13. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your Word. Thank you for your strength. Thank you for your might and your power. You are praiseworthy. I pray, Lord, you would fill our hearts with praise to you, for you have done great things. You have blessed us. You have provided every good thing for us, and we ask, Lord, that you would fill us with your spirit and give us understanding of your truth. Lord, we want to walk in your ways and to know you. Teach us how to seek you and how to hear your voice and to understand um, the things that Jesus is saying to us today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A couple key things in reading the Bible is observation, interpretation, and application. Um, if you don't observe everything, the, the who, what, when, and where for context, you won't be able to understand how and why, those why questions that we have. And once we know what the text says and what it means, we can then apply it to our lives personally and say, well, what does it mean to me? How should I live in light of this truth? It's like a doctor, he, he or she observes the symptoms of ill patients, interprets the facts to determine to develop a course of study, or excuse me, a, a, a course of treatment to restore them to good health. That's the whole point of going to the doctor and being cured of your illness. And it might mean taking medication or applying cream to the affected area or even a major surgery. And it's not telling the patient that they have a treatable condition where the healing is. It's in that patient being willing to undergo that treatment, to faithfully take the medication and to do the rehab and everything needed for their restoration. And it's a similar way, similar thing with the Bible, that you can know the Scripture, you can repeat it verbatim, and we can be familiar with Bible passages not knowing why they're important or how they should impact us, how our God's truth can be impacting our lives. And we can have our doctrines lined up like little vials on a shelf, that have never gone into our bloodstream. It's never gotten into our heart and changed the way we think and see the world and the way we, we view God and others. Knowledge, just knowledge alone, it can lead to error, but knowing and trusting God, we'll see it leads to uprightness. When, when I am going through the Word, it's more than just a literary analysis of the passage. It's more than a lecture intended to convey information or to take note of or to file away, but it's better compared to a meal, something that you ingest, something that goes inside of you that you chew on and you think about, and it goes into your, your heart and your mind and it's absorbed, and it's spiritual nutrition for your soul. It renews your mind. It, it brings personal transformation and strength. Proverbs 35, it says, Every word of God is pure, that he's a shield to those who trust in him. He shields us from error, from lies, from misunderstandings, hypocrisy, while he's guiding us into all truth, that we can do the things that please him. And I, I believe that God has divine revelation for you today that's as important for you to hear as it is an unbeliever who's hearing the gospel for the very first time. I believe that God is speaking, and he will speak to you today, and hearing it is not enough. We have to choose to put it into practice, to implement what he has said into our lives. 
Reading verses, it doesn't mean we've taken the first steps to personally change. But praise the Lord, He changes us by His grace, and He leads us in His right ways. We'll be in Luke chapter 13, starting in verse 1. There were present at that season some who told Him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish." Jesus came to the lost sheep of Israel. He preached repentance and the kingdom of God. And one of the key themes that we've been going through in the past previous chapters is Jesus exposing the hypocrisy of the people and the scribes and Pharisees. He, he brought out the fact they operated in their best interest concerning civil matters, but when it came to spiritual matters, they neglected those things. They neglected their dire spiritual condition um, that... They taught as commands of God the traditions of men. Jesus said, if you were hauled before a judge and if, if your neighbor was taking you to court and you knew that the evidence would show you were guilty, you would try to settle outside of court. And you, that's hypocrisy that you know that judgment from God is coming and yet you haven't prepared yourself, you haven't taken the plea bargain, you haven't tried to settle with him before judgment day. They observed weather, weather patterns and planned accordingly, but they didn't uh, ignore, they, they ignored the call of God to repent. They didn't uh, respond to the words of Jesus. They looked at the sky and they go, wow, it's red. That, that means that's going to be stormy tomorrow. But when Jesus said, it's, you need to repent, they missed it. They did not see it. They did not take action. And it's one thing if Jesus points out hypocrisy. Because he knows the hearts of all men and he's righteous. When we do so, if we point out someone's hypocrisy, it's almost like the pot calling the kettle black because we're all guilty the same. In our case, the cliche rings true. It takes one to know one. It doesn't ring true in Christ's case because he knows all things. He is righteous and true. He's not a hypocrite and he recognizes hypocrisy. Jesus told this story, or this, he was told about a situation where Galileans had been killed by Pilate while offering sacrifices, and it's inferred by the question Jesus asked that the Jews did consider those Galileans to be worse than others, because why else would such a thing have befallen them? Like we do when tragedies occur, we wonder why that would happen. And it seems that the Jews' answer was, those Galileans must have sinned in some way to have this terrible situation and circumstance. And Jesus turns their view away from the Galileans who had perished, flatly denouncing that theory that they were worse than other Galileans. And he, he has their focus redirected to themselves. He says, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then he uses an example of a tower of Siloam that fell and 18 people were tragically killed. And he said, these victims of the tower's collapse, it was not that they sinned more than other people in Jerusalem. And the personal application of this tragedy was the same. It wasn't, why did this happen? Or they must have sinned. 
It says, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Perhaps those who survived the tower's collapse or those who were not killed offering sacrifices felt morally or spiritually superior to those who did. Matthew Henry, he said wisely on this very point, we cannot judge of men's sins by their sufferings in this world, for many are thrown into the furnace as gold to be purified, not as dross and chaff to be consumed. Remember when Job's friends came to him, there were three of them who supposed the tragedy that had befallen him and his great loss of his, his children and his flocks and his herds, it was due to some sin, but they were wrong. And they sinned against God by assuming that it was because of sin. And it may be that a natural disaster is a judgment from God, but we have to take great care that we do not speak presumptuously as if we are all-knowing like God. Supposing almost always leads to incorrect conclusions. If you go and study this word in the Bible, we see that every time that people suppose, nearly every time, it was in error. And... Uh, we suppose all the time. We assume things. We have an expectation that's unmet. My wife, she recently uh, recovered from shingles. The first thing the specialist asked her was, have you been experiencing any extra stress as late? And from what I've read, doctors do not know exactly what causes or triggers uh, shingles, but many believe that it's because of stress. So you say, Oh, you're, you're dealing with this condition? Was there stress? And if there was stress, oh, see, it, that must be the cause. And the law of Moses, it was full of blessings for the obedient. It was full of curses for the disobedient. And thus a connection between suffering and deserving it was made. And if we think a person deserves what they are facing, that strips us of any compassion for them because they're like, well, they deserve it. This should have happened to them. When we think, um, when we make these cause and effect connections, we do it all the time and often it involves a personal judgment and a judgment of character. We can look at someone's appearance and make a character judgment. If someone's a bit overweight, we could say, oh, he obviously doesn't show self-control at the dessert table or he's lazy. If we see some woman who's rail thin, we might think, well, it, vanity might be the cause. Jesus he, he changes their perspective. He says, stop looking at this, but look at yourself. Instead of judging others about what you don't know, focus on what you do know, that you are a sinner, that you must repent. And unless you repent, you will also likewise perish. Notice in Job's case, God never told him why God allowed him to suffer. He never explained it to him. And we should never let what we do not know or understand keep us from the responsibility of doing what we do know. And it's true, we are sinners. And even though that was this tragic situation where 18 people died in that tower, Jesus is like, yes, it's true that they died, but you too are going to die. So you need to prepare for that inevitable time. Unless we repent, we will perish and our suffering will be eternal. Luke 13, verse 6, he also spoke this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, Look, for three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and found none. 
Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? But he answered and said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it, and if it bears fruit, well. But if not, after that, you can cut it down. Jesus launched into a parable about a man who planted a fig tree in his vineyard. And the reason why he planted a fig tree is likely because he wanted to eat figs. He liked them and he wanted them. I mean, who doesn't like figs when they're ripe and delicious? And he comes year after year and the figs, the fig tree will, will uh, fruit twice a year. So he keeps coming back and no fruit year after year. And he finally speaks to his landscaper. He says, for three years I've looked for fruit on this tree and found none. Cut it down. It's a waste of space. Uh, it, it doesn't belong in this vineyard. It's not producing anything. He had been patient, but the vine dresser encouraged even more patience. He says, give me another year. I'll give it some special treatment. I'll dig around the roots, make sure the water's being absorbed, the nutrients are going in, fertilize it. And if it still doesn't bear fruit, well, then we can cut it down. And this parable, it follows the phrase spoken by Jesus. And it's really important when we're interpreting the scripture that parables are not just standalone. Often they follow a flow of a passage or a context where Jesus is talking to people about a particular thing. And he had just said two times, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then he's talking about a tree being cut down that is perishing. Repentance, it's a key theme in the teaching of Jesus, and it's appropriate for the unbeliever as well as the disciple. Just like the owner was coming by and looking for figs on that fig tree, God passes by, he looks upon us, and he's looking for the fruit of repentance. He's looking for people's hearts to be contrite and broken before him. The prophet Jeremiah, he had spoken of Israel as a vine that God had planted and nourished, and here we see a fig tree within the vineyard. So, it's like these are the hearers of Jesus. He's comparing them to this fig tree that unless they repent, unless they bear this fruit of repentance, then they too will perish. When Jesus said that he would be leaving his disciples, they were troubled. After Jesus died on Calvary, his disciples mourned his passing. And his death was sorrowful but beneficial because through his death, Jesus would accomplish Atonement for sins, forgiveness, salvation for sinners, and the departing of Christ into heaven meant the Holy Spirit would fill and empower every disciple. And after he rose from the dead, this is what Luke 24, 45 through 47 says. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Then he said to them, thus it is written, thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. The death of Jesus brought sorrow to his disciples, but it was beneficial. Repentance, it is sorrowful, because it means we have to admit we've been wrong. We have been misguided. We have been deceived. We have offended the Almighty God, but it's beneficial because it restores us to fellowship with him. It reunites us in fellowship with God. Those who responded, those who refused to respond to the teaching of Jesus after three years, God was faithful and patient to give them more time to come to Him. He would provide every opportunity for their lives to be fruitful. 
those who responded to that conviction and were broken for their sin, they would be fruitful. They would be restored. But if they were not here and bear the fruit of repentance in time, they would cut down, be cut down and perish. And this interpretation, it dovetails really well with what John the Baptist said to the Pharisees who came out to watch him baptize people and hear his preaching, though they would not be baptized by him and they did not believe that he was a prophet from God. In Matthew 3, 7 through 10, it says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up Abraham, up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. What are the fruits worthy of repentance? A changed mind in response to guilt for sin, to humble yourself, to confess your sin to God and to others you have wronged, to have that contrite and broken heart, to reverse that decision to sin and choose instead to seek after God and do what pleases Him. The testimony of a changed life, an amended life, restoring perhaps what you have stolen and having reconciliation with God and men. There's a lot of fruits worthy of repentance. And God's looking for them. He's looking for them in your life. Luke 13, verse 10. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity 18 years and was bent over and could in no way raise herself up. But when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said to her, Woman, you are loosed from your infirmity. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. As Jesus taught in the synagogue on the Sabbath, there was a woman that singled out in the crowd who was afflicted by this spirit of infirmity. And this spiritual condition, it had this physical condition, sorry, it had a spiritual and a demonic cause. Had sin never entered into the world, she would not have suffered this. But there she is, 18 years with this condition where she's bent and she cannot stand up straight. Now, Dr. Luke, he doesn't tell us how this happened, why this happened. For 18 years, she's unable to stand upright. I imagine that she likely experienced physical pain, emotional distress. It was an obvious condition that people could see. It, it hindered her ability to do a lot of things. I mean, imagine if you couldn't stand up straight, uh, the, the impact that would have on you. After 18 years, it says she was bent over and in no way could raise herself up. I wonder if there were people in the synagogue who looked at her and that was how they spoke of her. They didn't even use her name. They just, the bent woman or the, the she was ostracized. She was outcast. She, she was perhaps shunned. Imagine, and I wonder if they were like the friends of Job, that imagine she must have sinned in some way to have this condition put upon her. Remember, God allowed Job to be afflicted and to suffer, to be troubled by Satan himself, not because he was a sinner, but because he was noted for his righteousness and fear of God above all other people on the earth. It was the opposite reason why God allowed Job to suffer. I find it encouraging, though, this woman went to the synagogue, despite it could have been humiliating or maybe embarrassing, uh, painful, that she could possibly be negatively judged and stared at, and 
and uh, assumptions be made about her character. And in this woman, we see a hint of mankind's bent and crooked condition before God, bound by sin and Satan, unable to make ourselves upright no matter how hard we try. Verse 12, it says, But when Jesus saw her, he called her to him. Isn't that remarkable? Jesus singles out the bent one, the one bound by Satan, the one who was incapable of raising herself up. And he shows compassion on the one who felt shunned or excluded or passed by, marginalized. And maybe you can identify like the, with this woman who suffered something for a long time, like the woman who had that incurable flow of blood for 12 years, or the lame man who laid by the pool of Bethesda for a long time, or the man who was born blind. So he's, he was a man, but he was born blind. So for at least 18 years, he had suffered blindness. The helpless and desperate case of the father who had that demon-possessed son, or the paralyzed man who was carried to Jesus by his friends, or the demon-possessed man who lived among the tombs and he's crying out and cutting himself, the man that no one could tame and, and people were afraid of him. In every hopeless case, Jesus provided help, hope, and salvation. There was no illness too severe, no affliction that had gone on so long he was unable to help uh, and confirmed the power of the gospel that he preached day in and day out, that as this, these physical manifestations of healing were done, so the gospel will save and transform you, that we are crooked and bent but can be made upright by grace through faith in him. And it's like... Jesus sees you right where you are. He looks upon you with compassion, and you may be in bondage, and he's calling you because you're in bondage, and he says, come to me. The question is, will you come? Will you trust him? Jesus called her to him and said to him, woman, you are loosed from your infirmity. He does not identify. He does not rebuke the spirit. He doesn't address it at all. He simply says, you are loosed from your infirmity, and she was set free. It says he laid his hands on her. Immediately she was made straight and glorified God. So the touch of Jesus, the woman was immediately loosed from this spirit of infirmity. She's raised up straight, and she glorifies God. Freedom from Satan's power was a purpose that Jesus came to this earth. We read that in 1 John 3.8. It says, he who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. When Paul testified before King Agrippa of Christ's call upon his life, he said Jesus sent him to the Gentiles in Acts 26, 18. He said to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Instant, total deliverance of this woman bound by a spirit of infirmity. It demonstrates the power of Jesus, the power of the gospel to deliver and save souls from eternal bondage. When Jesus called that woman, did she have to come to him? No. She didn't have to come to him. She could have ignored his call. She could have tried to hide. She could have gone home embarrassed and upset that he would single her out in the crowd. 
But as the good shepherd, Jesus says, his sheep hear his voice. He knows them and they will follow him. And this woman being bound was not prevented from coming to Jesus in faith and obedience. And Satan, he will lie. He will tell you, your affliction is too great. You're to blame for the things that have come into your life or you have suffered. That you're too far gone. That there's nothing that will help you now because nothing has helped you yet. I mean, 18 years she had suffered with this. That we're beyond hope and we're failures for being unable to raise ourselves up to straighten ourselves out. But Jesus called, told her to come to him. And he calls us too in Matthew 11, 28. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There's no disclaimers there. Come to me if you're heavy laden, if you're burdened. Come to me and I will give you rest. All who labor and are heavy laden. Coming to Jesus now, it's not a promise of physical healing. In every case, though God heals, nor does it mean your circumstances will immediately change. What it does mean is that by the power of God, Satan's grip on you can be broken forever. The bonds that are pulling you down, that are preventing you from straightening yourselves up, those can be broken and you can be lifted up through the power of Jesus, and glorify God for his miraculous deliverance. We are naturally bent, but when we yield to Jesus in faith and obedience, he deems us righteous by his grace. He lifts us up and makes us upright with him. Not everyone was so happy about what happened that day. We read in Luke 13, verse 14. But the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. And he said to the crowd, There are six days on which men ought to work. Therefore, come and be healed on them and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord then answered him and said, Hypocrite, does not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it away to water it? So ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound, think of it, for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath. Upon seeing this woman miraculously loosed, the ruler of the synagogue is indignant. He's angry. The woman's answer to being made upright, she's glorifying God for what has been done. His answer is to turn to the crowd. He doesn't look to the woman or to Jesus. He says, hey, this kind of work, it should not be done on the Sabbath day. Come any other day to be, to be healed, but not on the Sabbath day. He doesn't Talk to Jesus. He expresses his displeasure to bystanders. Now, in the law of Moses, there's no such prohibition, like you are prohibited to heal, but in his understanding of the law, it was considered work. Um, But since when had such a miracle happened in this synagogue? At least for 18 years, this woman had been coming, and uh, we don't know if she had been coming that entire time, but for 18 years, she had not been healed. So where was the healing then? His reaction, it's, it confirms the woe that Jesus spoke against the scribes and Pharisees in Luke eleven fifty two. He said, Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key to, of knowledge. You did not enter in yourselves, and those you, who were entering in, you hindered. There were people who refused to walk through the door of salvation, who is Christ, through faith in him, and they sought to prevent others from coming to Jesus. He accused Jesus of breaking the law, 
when Jesus is the divine lawgiver and the righteous judge, Jesus was not breaking the Sabbath day. He was actually doing exactly what was intended on the Sabbath day, providing rest for a weary soul. The man answered by complaining to the people. Jesus answered by exposing his hypocrisy. And he talked in a way that we don't hear talked very much. You might say, you might think someone's a hypocrite, but Jesus just says, hypocrite, exclamation point. Does not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it to water? The man who condemned Jesus for healing this woman, every Sabbath he would unhitch his animal and take it to the water because the animal needs water to live, right? It's a necessity. So Jesus said, so ought not this woman being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound, think of it, for 18 years be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath. Jesus loosed this woman and he led her to the source of living water where she would find rest for her soul so she could drink and live forever. For 18 years she'd been bound. Wasn't the Sabbath day the perfect day for her to enter into the rest that the Sabbath Jesus has become for us? I mean, that is why he came. Every day is a good day for the strongholds of Satan to be broken, and it was a heck of a lot more work to lead a tame, placid donkey to the water to drink rather than Jesus loosing this woman. It was nothing for him to do. He's God. Now, many have surmised what Jesus meant by daughter of Abraham. Did it simply mean she was of Jewish descent of Abraham, or did she have faith in God? Well, why not both? After being loosed and made upright, she glorified God. She credited him for her deliverance. The reason we might entertain is, why do you suppose God allowed this woman to be bound by a spirit of infirmity for 18 years? All we can do is suppose. And what happens when we suppose? We're often wrong. We can be as wrong as the people who thought that those Galileans whose blood was mingled with their sacrifices were worse Galileans or worse sinners than the rest. We can develop this rigid either-or mentality and, and get it kind of mixed up with was she saved, was she not saved, believers, and try to put it into boxes. And We see this mentality with the disciples of Christ. If you turn to John chapter 9, starting in verse 1, it says, what happened when, before Jesus healed a man who was born blind? John 9 verse 1 says, now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus was not saying that this man or his parents were sinless, like they had never ever sinned before in their lives. He's saying his blindness is not the result of, it's not a punishment or the result of a particular sin. It wasn't that they had sinned in some way, and so therefore their son was born blind. It was, why was it done? It says, to manifest the works of God in him. Blindness, it's not the way that we would think, right? We would think that God's works would be manifested in something 
different than blindness, than being bent by a spirit of infirmity for 18 years. The question is, do you want the works of God to be manifest in you? Is that something you're, you'd sign up for? You're like, oh, yeah. I don't want the blindness. I don't want to be bent for 18 years. But, hey, I want the, the works of God to be manifested in me. And who knows which way God will uh, work his wonders. But we know that he will because he's a wonderful God who does everything well. It may be he would allow something like blindness or 18 years of being bent double by a spirit of infirmity so that he would have God's work is just manifested in your life so other people could see it, so other people could see him and be led to him. In Apostle Paul's case, God sovereignly allowed a messenger of Satan, a demonic entity, to buffet him, to beat him up, because in weakness... He was made strong through faith in Jesus Christ, and that's in 2 Corinthians 12, 7. We may never know why God has allowed what he has in your life or in the lives of others, but we can know that in the darkness, the light of the world, Jesus Christ, shines brightest. There's no darkness that can withstand his marvelous light. There's no bondage too strong. There's no condition too extreme. There's no condition too long-standing that he is not able to immediately reverse it so his work can be manifested in and through your life, that he can miraculously deliver and save. The night is dark, it's cold, it's long, yet you know the sun in in a matter of hours will rise. Is God any less faithful to minister to those he calls when he created the sun? course not. Look to Jesus and be saved now. Come to him bent and broken. There's no salvation in any other. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Luke 13, 17. And when he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the multitude rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. When Jesus said this, it says all his enemies, were, all his adversaries were put to shame. The ruler of the synagogue who criticized him, the priests, uh, excuse me, the, the Pharisees who refused to believe on him, the devil who had a strong grip on this woman's life for 18 years, which was suddenly loosed and there was nothing he could do about it. This woman was made, to, made upright and glorified God. This Greek word ashamed, it means to shame, disgrace, confound, put to the blush. We've all felt embarrassed. Blushing is a distinct human condition. It's an involuntary response of the nervous system where there's this flood of adrenaline into your uh, bloodstream. And for whatever reason, it's not quite understood. The veins on your face, it it makes them blush a bit. And it happens when you least want to be noticed because it shows self-consciousness in a social situation. The miraculous loosing of the woman, Jesus' well-aimed words, it pierced the hearts of his adversaries. They knew he was right even though they did not believe him. They They knew they were wrong. But this is the application for them. Would they repent? Would there be in them fruits worthy of repentance? Would they say, wow, I I was totally wrong about that. I'm going to now see things Jesus' way. I'm going to start following him now. 
In contrast, all the multitude, it says they rejoiced for all the glorious things done by him. The things Jesus did, the things he said. This woman who long suffered shame for her bondage, she now glorified God. The people rejoiced. And there were some words that God spoke through the prophet Isaiah to the nation Israel concerning shame that are really fitting in Isaiah 54, verses 4 and 5. It says, Do not fear, for you will not be ashamed, neither be disgraced, for you will not be put to shame. For you will forget the shame of your youth and will not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. We don't know the marital status of this woman who was bent double, but Jesus removed the shame and bondage of her condition and restored her, making her upright. Sin always brings shame. It is a shameful thing to sin before God, but the fruit of repentance, it brings restoration and revival. After 18 years, maybe she supposed she just needed to live with that condition for the rest of her life, that she would always be bound by Satan. But Jesus called her to himself, and she came, and he touched her, and she was changed. One of the classic supposing moments in the Bible is when Joseph and Mary supposed that Jesus was in their company when they returned from Jerusalem. Was he in their company? No. He was, where was he? They had to look days for him because they didn't even know where to go. He was in the temple talking with the doctors and the scribes and Pharisees and amazing them with his knowledge. We should trade supposing for knowing Jesus, hearing his voice, repenting, and responding to him in obedience. If he says, come here, we would come to him. We would hear his voice and follow him and trust him and put ourselves at the mercy of his grace. Those who do so will never be put to shame. We're all on our own, bent and broken, in no way can lift ourselves up. But when we acknowledge the call of Jesus and we turn to him in faith, he restores us. And this woman is a great illustration of that in, in reality. He lifts our head. And then what's our response? To praise him, to glorify him, to make his works and goodness manifested through our lives. Those who do so will never be put to shame. And praise the Lord, he's taken our shame away. And we, instead of our cheeks being red with embarrassment, we can shine for his glory now and forever. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for sending Jesus to be the Savior of the world and for the touch of Christ, the call of Christ. And thank you that he lives and he speaks and he is powerful to transform our lives. And I pray, Lord, for those who are bound, for those who are fruitless, where there is no fruit of repentance. Lord, I pray that we would bear that fruit, that we would repent, we would turn towards you, and you would change us, you would raise us up, you would straighten us out, you would uh, free us to praise and magnify you, even though the night is long, and even though the affliction has continued, that you are God, and you have saved us, and we praise you, Lord. We worship you, and thank you for your marvelous works and your goodness toward all. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless.